I, I love that uh, drama uh, there about the, uh, the two cavemen and uh, how, how they're always trying to get one up on each other. Do you notice that? So one has a smaller rock and then a bigger rock and then a, a little folding chair and then a deck chair and then an Ikea chair. And they're all, all trying to get one up on each other until somebody eventually pitches up with a sports car which sort of takes uh, the biscuit, as it were. And it's all about one-upmanship and about having stuff to make ourselves look better than someone else. Uh, Ruth and I, my wife and I, were away with our kids a couple of weeks ago for half term. And when we go away on holiday, one of the things we uh, love to do is uh, buy those big bars of Cadbury's chocolate. Uh, But we have to buy different ones because uh, she likes just the normal dairy milk and I like the fruit and nut. And my argument is that if you eat enough of the fruit and nut chocolate, you can get one of your five a day fruit portions with all the raisins in it. Uh, I've worked out that to get the sort of handful of raisins that you're supposed to have, you've got to eat about seven or eight big bars of dairy milk, fruit and nut, but you can still get your five a day with it. Now, when, whenever I do this, and it happened on holiday, so you bring out the chocolate, we were sitting watching something, a DVD or something, and you bring out the chocolate, and uh, you say to yourself when you bring out the big bar, I'll just have a couple of bits and uh, have the rest through the rest of the holiday. Uh, and, of course, you have a couple of bits, and then you think, oh, that was pleasant. And you think, oh, just a couple more bits. And then you think, well, it's holiday after all. I am on holiday, so I'll have a few more bits. And before I know it, at least, I'm sure you don't do this, but before I know it, I'm over two-thirds of the way through the big bar of fruit and nut and starting to feel guilty about it. And I have a sort of, even as I'm talking about it, I can sense in me this sort of craving for fruit and nut chocolate. And we have cravings, don't we? We, we have cravings for things. Sometimes we're greedy for things. And kind of one-upmanship, like we saw in the drama, or greed or cravings, are just two of the reasons why we might find ourselves saying to ourselves, we need or we must have material possessions or wealth. Why we might find ourselves craving what we're calling for the sake of this morning, bling. Where bling is the sort of material stuff that we don't really need, but we think we ought to have to make our lives somehow complete. And one-upmanship and greed are just two of the reasons why we might find ourselves slipping into the dangers of craving bling or material wealth and well-being at the sake of other things, and we might call that materialism. And we're now nine years into the new millennium, and in this series we're looking at how life in the 21st century is different to life in the 20th century. How things are changing and have changed and what God might have to say about them. And so today we're looking at this subject of materialism. And the reality of 21st century life is that there is so much available to us. We have far more income and far more disposable income on average than ever we used to. I found a a news release this week from the Office for National Statistics who do the census and gather information about life in the UK and they, they found this, that household net wealth has more than doubled in the UK in real terms between 1987 and 2006. That is an extraordinary statistic. That's not just saying that income has doubled. Income has on average doubled in real terms. That means taking into account inflation and house prices and all that kind of stuff. Income between 87 and 2006, only 20 years, net household income has more than doubled. It's an extraordinary statistic. And the volume of spending on goods and services 
by households in the UK uh, between the same time period has gone up by more than two and a half times. Now that's interesting, isn't it? Because you can instantly see, if you can do some maths, why we've got a debt problem. Because income's doubled, but spending on goods and services has gone up two and a half times. You can instantly see why we have a debt problem. But that's another really interesting statistic. That uh, in those 20 years, between the 80s and the new millennium, spending on goods and services by households in the UK has on average gone up by two and a half times. And it's also very interesting that the same news release says, meanwhile, attitude surveys suggest little has changed in adult satisfaction with their standard of living over the same period. So whilst we're earning more and spending more, the satisfaction that we have with our standards of living has not changed. And in fact, they did a a survey again that said, between 1973 and 2006, in response to the question, are you satisfied with your life, 86% of people said yes. On the whole, they were satisfied with their lives. In 2006, the figure was 85%. So virtually no change. In fact, just ever such a slight drop. Which again would seem to demonstrate to us that the correlation between how much we earn and how much we spend and our satisfaction, there is none. We can't make ourselves more satisfied with our lives by earning more and spending more. That would seem to be what this survey is saying. So in the new millennium, we are faced with this uh, notion that we are earning more and spending more than ever before. And of course, that's not necessarily a bad thing. We must be careful, because the temptation is to say, oh, everything about life in the new millennium is awful. Well, of course it's not. It's it's good that income levels have risen. It's good that 40 or 50 years ago, many of my sort of parents' generation, or, or their parents' generation, actually had to scrimp to get by. And that whilst there are people still have to do that today, on average, income has gone up. That, that's a good thing. And of course, if our income has gone up in real terms, that's a good thing for us, because it means we have more choices. It means we can do more things. It, it means we have more money to potentially do something good with. So that is not bad. Neither is the accumulation of material possessions in and of itself a bad thing. But of course, there are dangers and responsibilities that come with this extra income and so on. The dangers are that we become all about how much money we have and all about how we get more. Because it's not the material in materialism that's bad. Material things are not in and of themselves bad. It's the ism that makes it bad. And there are lots of other situations where that is true too. Alcohol, for example, is not bad. Alcoholism where our lives become enslaved to drink, of course, is. And it has serious implications for our lives and for our health. Work is not bad. In fact, it's very positive. Workaholism, where work becomes all our lives are about, and we do it at the expense of other things, is, of course, bad. So material things are not bad. In fact, many of them make our lives better and far more productive. But when our desire for material things overtakes our lives and overtakes other more important priorities, then there are real dangers. And that's the dangers of the ism. That's where material things becomes materialism. And of course, we are under pressure to want more. We are under pressure to increase our desire for material things. One-upmanship 
and greed are just two of the pressures on us to want to get more. But there are others too. Keeping up with the Joneses is a classic pressure that because somebody else has got something, we ought to have it too. Otherwise somehow we're inferior to them. Our celebrity-obsessed culture is another pressure because we see pictures and television programs showing us how much these celebrities have, the size of their homes, their cars, their phones and so on. And the implicit message is we should crave those things too. That's a pressure on us. The final pressure, and the most dangerous I think, is that so often we're taught that our value, our sense of worth, our success can be measured by how much material stuff we have, how much money we have. And if we buy into that myth that this is how we're defined, then it can drive us to want more, it can drive us to try to surround ourselves with material possessions to somehow prove our success. The reality of life in the 21st century is that it is very often defined by our accumulation of wealth and material goods. And when life becomes defined that way, and becomes all about how much stuff we can get, then there's a great danger that we lose the real sense of who we are, and how much value we really do have. Uh, How much you think you are worth? This is an interesting question. I found a website this week called humanforsale.com. And uh, in it you had to fill in a survey... And based upon stuff you put in about your lifestyle and how old you were and what you do for a living and what your interests are and all that kind of stuff, based on that, it came up with a calculation of how much you're worth. And so I thought, well, so I filled it in. Would you like to know how much I'm worth? Apparently, according to this website, it's Americans, this is in dollars, so uh, you have to work out exchange rates and so on. But according to this website, I am worth $2,107,932. That sounded like quite a lot of money to me. I was wondering where I could go and cash that in. I didn't tell Ruth, my wife, because she'd definitely want to know where she could go and cash that in. But apparently that is how much my life is worth, to just over $2 million. Now, you can go home and do it and see if you're more valuable than me uh, and uh, compare. But, you know, if you were actually to add up the parts of your body and uh, work out how much they were worth, uh, you'd come to about £4.50. Because most of us is oxygen and that kind of stuff that we would be worth £4.50, apparently, unless, according to Wikipedia, which, of course, is the fountain of all knowledge, unless, of course, you are prepared to sell your parts for uh, uh, transplants and things to people willing to pay for them. And then, apparently, you'd be worth £25 million were you prepared to sell all of your body parts to go to somebody else who wanted to buy them because they wanted to have a transplant. £25 million. So £4.50 or £25 million, depending on who's paying, I guess. But what truly are we worth? How do you value a life? Are we worth more than the accumulation of our material possessions? Uh, I want to look this morning at an encounter that Jesus had in his life, which I think has an awful lot to tell us about the dangers of materialism and what we are truly worth. And the story is of a man called Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus was a tax collector. And in fact, he wasn't just a tax collector, he was the chief tax collector. And one day he'd heard that uh, Jesus was coming to his town. And he wanted to see him, because Jesus was kind of like a, a rather famous celebrity at that moment. So Jesus was coming to his town and he wanted to meet Jesus... 
And uh, he was a short man, and he knew he wouldn't be able to see. So he decided to climb a tree to get over the crowds, so that he would be able to see Jesus. And Jesus came down the street, and there were indeed crowds of people coming around. And shall I just turn it off? I'm a bit worried about this flashing light. There we go. And, uh, and he was a bit worried about, uh, um, uh, Jesus was coming down the street and he saw Zacchaeus in the tree and he said, Zacchaeus, come down, I must come to your house today. Zacchaeus, come down, I must come and stay with you. And so Zacchaeus came down and had this encounter with Jesus, at the end of which uh, Zacchaeus said, look, for whatever I've cheated people, I'll give back four times the amount. And I'm going to give away half of my goods and possessions to the poor. And the story, as it's told in Luke's account of Jesus' life, it tells us that Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector and a very wealthy man. Now, the way that this worked in Roman society, and uh, uh, the place where they were was part of the Roman Empire, is that tax collectors uh, were uh, were, uh, given the responsibility of collecting the taxes to go to Rome, to go to this great central government so it could be spent and so on. But they were allowed to cream off, to to charge people more than what Rome needed to generate an income for themselves. And Zacchaeus being the chief tax collector meant that he was like at the head of a pyramid scheme in our language, really. He was the chief guy. He would have had lots of tax collectors working for him and he would have been able to skim off a bit from all of their income as well as his own. So he was like the head of this pyramid scheme. And as such, he was an incredibly wealthy man. He was driven by a lust and a desire for wealth and material things. He'd been cheating people to acquire wealth. He'd been charging them way more tax than he should have been. And consequently, he'd been getting rich at the expense of other people's misery. And the people that he would have been cheating were not wealthy people. Many of them would have been farmers and fishermen and tradesmen just trying to scrimp a living. But Zacchaeus didn't care about that. You see, he was after money. He was totally enslaved to materialism, to the acquisition of bling. And materialism can do that to us. The pursuit of money and material things can cause us those problems. And there are real dangers. Firstly, materialism can harden our hearts. Like Zacchaeus, it can make us blind to the needs of others so that we ignore them and their misery in our own pursuit of wealth. For Zacchaeus, it was the needs of those he was collecting tax tax from that he'd been hardened to and he was ignoring. For us, it might be different. For us, it might be our families or our children as we work every hour we can to get more money and ignore their needs. Their need for good quality time with us, to be with us sharing and talking about their day. We may become hardened to that because we're pursuing material things, working all the hours we can. It may mean that we harden our hearts to people around us in need or to people in our world who are dying every day for lack of food and medicine and our hearts become hard towards them. Materialism can harden our hearts. The second great danger of materialism is that it can lead us into debt. And we're experiencing the reality of that, aren't we? Greedy bankers have loaned money that uh, they don't have to greedy people who just want to buy stuff that they don't really need. And all of that has led us into a credit crunch and a recession. And it is so ironic to me that we hear our government and our economists telling us that the solution 
to this problem that we find ourselves in is to get the banks lending again and to get people borrowing again so that we can buy more stuff. That just seems so ironic to me. Isn't that what got us into the mess in the first place? Materialism can drive us to debt and debt enslaves us and it leads us to constant worry about money Now, some debt may be unavoidable. Things like mortgages or student loans or so on may be completely unavoidable. We may not be able to live without them. But a lot of our debt is caused by our insatiable desire to have more stuff that we don't really need. The final danger of materialism is that it can set priorities for our lives that aren't good or healthy for us. I don't know whether you ever watch, we like in our family, uh, the programme Total Wipeout with Richard Hammond on a Saturday evening, early Saturday evening. I don't know whether you watch that. It's a, just a, it's a, like a modern day, it's a knockout, if you remember. It's a knockout. People getting whacked and bashed and fought. It's fun, fantastic fun. There was a guy on there a couple of weeks ago, and uh, he, he was asked why he was there. And there's a prize of £10,000 at the end of this competition. And, and he said, well, I, I'm here for the money. It's all about the money for me. My whole life, is about getting money. That was absolutely what he said. His whole life was about getting money. And I thought, so how sad is that? And what a misshaped understanding of priorities. If our overriding priority in our lives is the acquiring of money and possessions, we miss out on a huge amount. We're missing out on family, friends. We're missing out on living a life of huge significance. And we're missing out on leaving a lasting legacy. Because money and material possessions are no good to us when we die. Ultimately, no matter what our culture tells us, our lives will not be measured by the amount of money or stuff we have or had. Our lives will be measured by what we stood for and the contribution that we made. And materialism robs us of setting those priorities in our lives. Zacchaeus had fallen right into the trap of materialism. He was experiencing the dangers of a hardened heart and misset priorities. But through this encounter with Jesus, something happens, something changes, and he finds the antidotes to materialism. And that's what we'll talk about in just a moment. That's a film, Confessions of a Shopaholic, that's out in cinemas right now. Not that we're on a commission or anything, but you, you understand that the, um, the reality of what we're talking about today is, uh, is significant and understood by many around us. The fact that uh, films like that and books like that are being sold uh, makes us understand this is a real-life issue that we all uh, face and that others face. So... If there are real dangers in our materialistic culture, if there are dangers of slipping into materialism, hardened hearts, slipping into debt, uh, uh, getting wrong priorities and so on, then we need to try and understand what might be some of the antidotes to materialism. How might we uh, uh, sort ourselves so that we don't find ourselves uh, slipping into it and encountering those dangers? Well, for me, the antidotes to materialism are found again in this story of Zacchaeus who had given over his heart to materialistic desires, to the uh, desire to be wealthy, but who then has this unbelievable turnaround. And this turnaround happens when Jesus sees Zacchaeus up that tree, and he stops and he says, come down, I must stay at your house. And that's the phrase that Jesus uses, I must stay at your house. That to me is an interesting turn of phrase. 
Why must he? I mean, it's not like he doesn't have to, uh, to have a place to stay. Somebody like Jesus would have had lots of offers of places to stay. So when he says, I must come and stay at your house, it's not because he wants somewhere to stay or he needs somewhere. So why does he say, I must come? Well, it's also not because he didn't have anything to do. He was incredibly busy. He had lots of other things to be involved in. So why does he say, I must come to your house? Well, I think the reason is that this short encounter with Zacchaeus defines what Jesus was all about. It defines his life and his work. Helping enslaved people become free. Helping the sinner discover their salvation. This is what Jesus is all about. He must go to Zacchaeus' house because this is what his life is supposed to be about. This is what he is supposed to be doing. So he must go. But the people, the story tells us, the people began to mutter, how can this be? This man has cheated us. He's horrible. He's evil. He's a sinner. Why would Jesus want to go to his house? They are muttering. But Jesus ignores their grumbles. There are reminiscences here of an earlier encounter Jesus had with a prostitute. When he welcomed her, but the religious people of the day who he was with, the Pharisees, started grumbling. It says the same thing. Jesus welcomed the prostitute, and these other people started grumbling. In the same way as the religious elite, the Pharisees, had given up on the prostitute, the crowd have given up on Zacchaeus. That's why they're muttering. But Jesus refused to write either of them off. Jesus refused to write off those who remain open to God. And Jesus' visit to Zacchaeus' home reveals his acceptance of the tax collector. And Jesus refuses to worry about what people might say or the impression his visit might make because his priority is to help people far from God, living outside of a life of God's will for them, to come and know him and receive him. We are never beyond the reach of God, no matter how far away from him we think we might be. Jesus reached out to tax collectors and prostitutes who were the scum of the earth in these days. And if he can reach out to them, he can reach out to us. And through this encounter with Zacchaeus, or with Jesus, Zacchaeus' life is turned around. Zacchaeus has helped us see the consequences of materialism, and now he helps us find the antidote. Following Zacchaeus' encounter with Jesus, Zacchaeus says, I will give away half of my possessions to the poor, and anyone that I have cheated I will pay back four times the amount. That is an amazing turnaround for somebody whose life up to this point had been about the acquisition of wealth. And in the Jewish faith of which Zacchaeus would have been a part, it was considered unbelievably and incredibly generous to give away 20% of any income that you had. So for Zacchaeus to say, I'm going to give away 50% is extraordinary. And the restitution that uh, Zacchaeus offers for his wrongdoing, for his cheating, four times the amount, that goes way beyond what the religious law of the day required. See, his heart priorities have changed. And instead of being enslaved to materialism, his heart is now given over to generosity. His life, instead of being defined by wealth, is now defined by his relationship to God. And he has now placed his material wealth under the stewardship of God. 
such giving as Zacchaeus is indicating he will do is not required by God's law. Instead, it reflects a heart that is now given over to God. And Zacchaeus' heart changed as a result of his encounter with Jesus. Shows that his newfound faith is not some kind of intellectual exercise for him. It's involved a radical change of worldview. And Zacchaeus' wallet speaks volumes for what has happened in his heart and with this life encounter he has had with Jesus. His wallet now speaks volumes for the priorities in his life. And the question I have for this morning is, does ours, does our, do our wallets reflect the priorities we have set for our lives? You see, generosity is the antidote to materialism. Being prepared to give away You know, we live in a world that means we need some material things. We need a place to live, we need a car to get around, maybe we need to eat, we need to sit on something, we need to sleep in something. It is not a solution to the dangers of materialism to say, oh, let's just do away with them. That's not a solution. How then do we ensure that we can uh, enjoy material things without becoming enslaved to materialism with all its dangers? Well, generosity is one of the key antidotes. Ensuring that the material things that we do have can be used by other people. Ensuring that we are giving away some of our finances. The second antidote is to ensure that we are living by the right priorities and that we are continually revisiting them. What is more important to us? Money or family? Material stuff or friends? Pursuing the acquisition of more money or pursuing God's call on our life and in our church. And it's not about legalistic laws and guidelines, it's about an attitude of heart. Zacchaeus' heart was changed through his meeting with Jesus, and he was therefore prepared to go way beyond what the law required in his generosity. He was prepared to go way beyond what was required in revisiting his priorities and in adjusting them. When our hearts are changed by God, suddenly money and stuff doesn't matter so much. We realise that actually everything we have, we have because he has given it to us. And actually it all belongs to him anyway. And we are just called to be good stewards of it. And our lives now cease to become defined by our material wealth. And we are now defined by something that is priceless our relationship with God. And we ask, how much are we worth? Two million dollars, four pound fifty, twenty-five million pounds. Actually, what we are worth is that a man, Jesus, would go to a cross and die for us. That's how much we are worth. And that is priceless. I'm just going to pray and then uh, Paul is going to come play a song for us very much along this theme and actually as you listen to the song you realise I think this could almost be Zacchaeus speaking these words and so I want this to be about our response to what we've been talking about this morning allow this song to lead us in a response really as uh, you perhaps allow God to speak to you about what this means for you so I'm just going to pray and then Paul will lead us to pray God we want to, uh, we want to thank you first of all that life in the 21st century means uh, very often that uh, uh, we don't have to worry about where the next meal is coming from. 
that we don't have to go out and grow things and if the harvest fails, starve. That actually life in the 21st century means that we can have an income and that we can use it to buy food and the the things that we need. But I do pray this morning that you would help us too. We realise with this income comes great responsibility. And I pray that you would help us to avoid the dangers of slipping into materialism.